Our scripture reading comes from uh, the great book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. It says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God uh, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So, uh, in our in our series, our teaching series that we've been going through in the book of Titus, we've we've seen that. Uh, it, it, this book is not just about uh, what a healthy church looks like, which is what Paul's writing about, right? That he's describing and encouraging uh, Titus on what a healthy church looks like. And, and this book isn't just about talking about what a healthy church looks like, but he's also inviting us to be that kind of church. He's invited us to be the kind of church that lives the grace of God out where we display the transforming work of the gospel, that if you belong to Jesus, that that overflows, that that spills out of your life. You see that the reason that we need that is because our neighborhoods that we live in, our cities, our communities, our neighborhoods that we live in, they miss something when the church is not displaying the gospel. The church the local church misses something when, when you are not living out the gospel. And to take it a step further, you miss something. You miss something when the church is not engaged in your life displaying the gospel for you. And see, that change that we need, that transformation, that, that transforming grace of God spilling out in our lives, that type of change that we need happens in community. And so this morning, uh, in verses 8 through 11 of Titus chapter 3, I want us to look at uh, three marks of, uh, of a community uh, that lives out the grace of God. And the first thing that we see is that it's a community that is transformed by truth. We're a community that cares about truth, that loves and desires truth, and is therefore transformed by truth. We see that in verse 8. When Paul says to Titus, he says, hey, look, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. Now, what is he talking about here? What is he talking about when he says the saying is trustworthy? What is he referring to when he says, I want you to insist on these things? What are, what are, what are these things? Now, Paul, if you remember from Scott's message uh, that he just so brilliantly expounded on the passage from last week when we were gathering online, uh, 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 he, 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 he talked about how Paul gave them, he just, uh, <coughs> he just expounded on the good news of Jesus Christ, about how the Father, Son, and Spirit has all that they've done to save us. And so he broke down historical facts of the gospel. That God has saved us through an event in history, through Christ the Son. And now, <coughs> excuse me, now in chapter 8 or, or verse 8, he's saying, now insist on these things. 
These things are important. These things that I just expounded on, they're important, and I want you to insist on them. In other words, talk about them to the church again and again and again. Get it from their heads down into their hearts. The big idea is that we need truth repeated to us again and again and again until it starts to transform our lives from the inside out. <clears throat> until it starts to transform not only our minds, but our hearts too. And so look, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to understand that if you are truly following Jesus, you are called to be a lifelong student. You are called to therefore be a lifelong learner. <clears throat> there are always new depths of doctrine to dive into, always new ways that God's truth can shape and transform us. The goal is for the precepts that we read to transition and turn into a practice where we live it out. Uh, go ahead and look at, at the full fullness of verse 8 with me. This is the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And so Paul's saying, hey, look, this gospel that I just like exploded on the page about, I want you to repeat it. I want you to insist on it. I want you to rehearse it again and again and again so that those who believe in God, those who truly believe in God, may be careful to now devote themselves to good works. You see, that's the goal of our doctrine. That's the goal of our teaching. It's not just so we can have these lofty ideas. It's not so we can have these theological debates and insights. It's so that it can actually transform our lives and spill out into hope for others. You see, it's not just to hear and consider information, but to take it in and, and to think through the implications of that information, that biblical information in our lives. How what, how what God's word says shapes the decisions that we make tomorrow. How we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spread hope to those around us, who we're gonna spread hope to. And so question I want you to consider this morning in light of this verse is, what is your relationship with preaching and teaching? What is your relationship with preaching and <coughs> teaching? Do you understand its importance? Do you understand why Paul would say, <coughs> insist on these things? Are you a passive receiver of teaching or do you understand the importance of it? Do you actively listen? Now, <coughs> I, uh, I don't have like a green thumb like some of you guys, right? <clears throat> like my brother-in-law back there in the corner. Like I've never cared too much about the difference between like this kind of plant and that kind of plant and why this one grows in this season, that one grows in that season. Uh, but then during quarantine, we decided to spice up our backyard a little bit, right? Uh, like many of you. And so we bought some jasmine vines and put them like all along our back, our back, our like white back fence. We painted it white and then we put these jasmine vines across it. Uh, and about three weeks in after we did that, <coughs> half of the vines were doing fine and the other half were not doing fine. Right? Like they were not doing great. They were dry. They were browning. Uh, and suddenly I find myself just 
suddenly wanting to learn and care about how much sunlight and water they need to get healthy so those $200 don't go wasted away, right? Like suddenly I found myself caring. So what about you? Like, do you find yourself, do you find yourself desiring to be spiritually healthy? Do you, like just some honest talk? Like, do you do you see that as a as a very real and valid concern of yourself? Do you care enough about the health of your soul to care about teaching and preaching? Do you pay attention to the word? Do you study it? Do you do you feed on it? You see, faithful Bible teaching is one of the marks of a true, healthy, and living church. And you can't have a healthy church without people who have an appetite for Bible teaching. That's why he emphasizes this here. That's why at the end of verse 8, he says, These things, these things that I want you to insist on, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Like, hey, look, if you want to be healthy, if you want to do good to those around you, then you got to care about what you're receiving. You need to make sure that you're receiving good teaching. Or consider how the author of Hebrews amplifies this point in Hebrews chapter 10. When he says in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And when the author of Hebrews uses that word consider, he says, hey, look, let us consider how to stir up one another uh, to love and good works. That word consider means mindfulness, right? Like, hey, let's be mindful of this. Let's be mindful about how we can gather and stir one another up to the truth of God's word so that we can do good uh, to those around us. And when he uses that word uh, uh, meet, when he says don't neglect to meet together in verse 25, that word meet uh, uh, more ha has less the connotation of like gathering and more the connotation of like assembling. You know the difference between gathering and assembling? Like if I threw together a bunch of pieces of wood, right? Just like sawed, sawed up pieces of wood and like bolts and screws and things like that. And I gathered these pieces of wood uh, and put it in a pile. Like, could you call that? Could you call that a table? I'm not trying to get philosophical here. Some of you might be like, I don't know. Maybe you could, right? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but if I assembled that table together, if I assembled it, and it can hold weight on it, and if others could gather around it, then and only then could you call it a table in the truest sense of that word, right? You see, the point is we aren't just called to gather together like a pile of saints and believers, right? We're not just called to just gather together, but to assemble together, to fit into one another, to have a united purpose together, to carry a weight together. You see, we're more than just a pile of Christians. We're an organic family of sons and daughters of the living God. And so I want to use my gifts to build you up. And I need you, I need you guys to use your gifts to build me up. We need one another in that sense. 
And so this picture of unity and interdependence is just so foundational to what it means for us to be the church, the body of Christ, that we must, uh, we must press into this. We need to care about this and we need to avoid and derail any threat to that unity. And this is why we move into point number two, which is that uh, he's calling for a community that diverts from divisiveness. So not just a community that's transformed by the truth, but a community that assembles together and diverts itself from any form of division and divisiveness. Look, ungodly division in the church is ugly. And it's messy. It leaves people confused and hurt uh, and exhausted and tired and drained. And Paul's saying, like, look, you gotta, you got to divert yourself from those kinds of situations. And then he lists a number of divisive issues that we now need to divert ourselves from. Issues that can threaten the health and the good works of a church. We see them in verse 9 when Paul says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For those things, they are unprofitable and worthless. So in verse 8, he says, Hey, look, insisting on the gospel, rehearsing that, repeating that, reminding ourselves of that, that excellent and profitable for all people but these divisive issues they are unprofitable and they are uh, they are worthless let's go through each of those what does he mean by foolish controversies foolish controversies now you need to understand that there were there were two groups uh, at the time on the island of Crete where Titus where Titus was uh, kind of posted uh, to oversee the church there Remember, Paul's writing to Titus, giving him some hot tips on how to keep the church growing and healthy on the island of Crete, all these new churches. And uh, uh, on the island of Crete, there were two groups that would try to influence the church from the outside by working their way in. First, there were a group of Cretans, right? Like, you ever heard that derogatory term, Cretans? That's actually where it comes from, right? Because the people of Crete were just nasty people. And they're, some of the leaders in Crete, uh, the, this group of Cretans, who tr would try to impose their Greek myths into the church. And so they would spread these conspiracies and controversies related to Rome uh, and, and try to steer the church into them, causing people to really worry all the time and to be anxious, and then there was this other group, the Judaizers that we saw in Titus chapter 1, who would add to the words of Scripture. And so these were people that had a, um, a, a background in, in Judaism, uh, but they kind of perverted it and twisted it, and they added to those Old Testament Scriptures. And they devoted themselves, these people, devoted themselves to Jewish myths that were outside the bounds of Scriptures. And they'd take those myths and they would start to create these extra rules and traditions and impose them on others. Now what that might look like today, it's when we create all these extra biblical commands, right? According to our own preferences. And then we impose them on others and say, you need to make this your Christian practice. Even though we don't find those anywhere in the scriptures, right? 
So when we take these, what we call extra biblical commands, and what, when I say extra biblical, I don't mean like really, really biblical. I mean like outside of biblical, right? Um, outside of biblical. Uh, and, and so we take these commands and say, hey, look, unless you follow these commands, unless you follow our rules and customs, you won't be allowed into the fellowship of the Lord. Unless you vote exactly the way that I do, unless you parent with the same exact philosophy that we have, then you're not really one of us. Then you can't really say that you're a follower of God. We turn our preferences into dogmatic priorities and practices. And Paul says, look, avoid that trash. Avoid that nonsense. Avoid those foolish controversies. Another divisive issue he lists in this verse is what he calls genealogies. Now you might be thinking like, oh, so does this mean that we don't, we don't have to read like all those long lists of genealogies in the Old Testament and the beginning of Matthew and of Luke? Nice try. <laughs> of course it doesn't mean that. Of course it doesn't mean that. This, was, this, 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 whole, this whole idea regarding genealogies was uh, related to really another sort of conspiracy idea that was spreading around that time that said that all of these old genealogies in the old Hebrew scriptures should not be interpreted literally and historically, but allegorically. And so instead of looking at verses like, uh, like we see in uh, I, I Second Chronicles when it says, you know, Jeshua was the father of Joachim, and Joachim was the father of Eliashib, uh, and, and, and taking that at face value and saying, okay, so Jeshua was the daddy of Joachim. Joachim was the daddy of Eli, right? Just taking it at face value like that as a historical line, uh, a family tree, they would like read into them, into these verses, just these wild and mystical uh, assumptions and interpretations. Uh, they would say like, look, these aren't real names. These aren't real families in history with a real lineage, but there's a secret code that we need to dissect through the letters and, and, and the way that it's organized and things like that. So this could be like anyone who tries to turn Christianity into like a primarily mystical experience uh, or to where you, 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 know, you try and like interpret the scriptures and Christian spirituality as like this, this secret code to make your life uh, better. Um, just merely to make your life better? Does Christianity make your life better? Absolutely. But does it merely make your life better? No. It's the record and story of the, just the greatest news in, in history. And so we, we, we have some people that might turn, take this tendency uh, to make the Bible uh, uh, mystical and allegorical or, or turn uh, and, and manipulate certain passages of scriptures into like like a, a get-rich-quick scam rather than a historical reality that engages us and transforms our whole lives. Paul goes on in verse 9, and he mentions what he calls dissensions. Dissensions, this here, he's referring to someone who's just addicted to friction, addicted to fighting and contention, always want to start an argument, always wanting to pick a fight, always wanting to stir up a battle. This could be somebody who tries to, to, to treat every hill as a hill to die on, right? Every personal preference they have related to the faith is a hill to die on. 
I don't like the way that we do groups. The Bible says we got to do it this way. We need to do it every week rather than every other week. Or I don't like the way that we play that song. I don't, I, I don't like the 2017 version. I don't like the 2014 version, right? 2017 one's heresy. And so we, 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 we like just, just go through all the itty, like just itty bitty details uh, and, and make every hill a hill to die on. This is a person who's drawn to dissension. Just argumentative by nature. Cares more about being right than the person across the table. And lastly, Paul says in verse 9, he talks about quarrels about the law. Quarrels about the law. Now, the law, anytime you see that in the New Testament, it's typically shorthand for the scriptures of the Old Testament. Because those were the only ones they had at the time. And so Paul here, he's, he's talking here about these false teachers who question the authority of God's word and were causing people to doubt or to believe some like just crazy things. Uh, and, and just to be clear, like having a season of doubt that like doubt can be sort of a healthy season that we can wrestle through from time to time. But the goal is always to work through it and to press into the word of God and to lean into the people of God as you're working and wrestling through those doubts. But what was happening here is that, is, is that there were people who shouldn't be teachers who were dogmatically teaching things that they didn't know anything about and were causing people to go astray. Now, look, this, this, this list that Paul gives us in verse 9 is not an exhaustive list. There are certainly many other things uh, that can infiltrate a church to cause division and dissension in a church. And so the list could uh, be longer than just what he's listed here. But these were some of the primary examples that existed in the churches on the island of Crete. These are just a list of some of the examples that, 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 that they were dabbling in that he calls unprofitable and worthless. In other words, these things are no good. They produce no fruit, and they have the potential to disrupt our foundation truth. They have uh, the uh, uh, potential to destroy our unity and our harmony with one another. Look, this is a big deal to Paul. That's why he's harping in on it. That's why he's talking about the intensity of these things. This is a big deal to him. And he's pointing out that behind every divisive issue that we might have, behind every divisive issue, there's a typically a divisive person that needs to be confronted. Because that person is destroying our unity. That doesn't reflect the glory of God. And that, that has to stop. So it takes us into our third and final point where we see that he's talking about a community that delights in discipline. A community that delights in discipline or what we, what we might call a church discipline. Now there's two kinds of church discipline that we see in the scriptures. The first is what's called form of discipline. A form of discipline is where we grow to be more like Jesus. 
And so that's like from the moment that I believed in the gospel, that Jesus saves me from my sin and that he renews my mind and gives me a new heart that desires to know him uh, more and to follow him all the days of my life. From that moment on, I start to engage in what's called spiritual disciplines right? I start to, uh, and so I attend church. I begin attending church regularly on the Lord's Day. I start to read my Bible and try and study it in community. I plug into Christian community to make sure I'm not doing this on my own, and I seek to submit every area of my life uh, to Him, to Christ. So that's formative discipline. What we're doing right now, gathering on the Lord's Day, Listening to Bible teaching, encouraging one another, stirring up one another to love and good works. This is a form of formative discipline. But then we get into what's called a restorative discipline. Restorative discipline. That's when you have a situation where when I'm noticeably not submitting an area of my life to Jesus... Like if you find me noticeably not submitting an area of my life to Jesus, then you as my brothers and sisters will hopefully love me enough to call me out on it. That's restorative discipline because your goal is to restore me to spiritual health. And this is what Paul is unpacking when he gets to verse 10. He says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now, look, I know that some of us, we hear that and, and, and we know that when we, don't li- we, we don't like that, right? It kind of sounds harsh. Sounds harsh, but I want to break down what's, what's happening here because this, this talk, talk about restorative discipline tends to be like avoided by a lot of preachers and a lot of churches because uh, it's just not a popular topic, right? It's not popular to talk about the parts of scripture that say like, hey, you know, if it gets to this point, like, have nothing to do with that person. That's not popular because it's, it's difficult uh, to sort of sick, sick, uh, uh, sink our teeth into and, 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 and sort of wrestle with. Um, but you know, like one of the reasons, one of the reasons that, 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 that we, uh, when we preach, we typically go through books of the Bible verse by verse is, is, is it forces us to, to talk about and to work through some of uh, the verses and passages of Scripture that, that, that might be a little bit more difficult to work through, right? The Bible says that every single word is breathed out, inspired by God, and useful for us. And so if we believe that to be true, then when we come through hard stuff, we need to press into it and seek to understand what's going on there. I want you to see what's happening in this verse. Paul says, we need to confront the divisive person, right? And the reason we want to confront the divisive person is because they're destroying the whole thing. They're destroying everything good that we've got. He says, but that confrontation, I want you to notice this, that confrontation needs to be marked by love and patience. It needs to be marked by love and patience. That's what's emphasized when he says, hey, look, pursue this person uh, and give them a chance again and again and again. Go after them, but give them a chance again and again. And and, and then when it gets to this point, uh, this point of no return, 
avoid them because they're they're causing division they're destroying what's all that's good that you have the hope is that they would receive that correction and uh, be restored uh, to uh, uh, restored to spiritual health thanks homie so <laughs> is somebody just dying like watching me here um yeah, yeah. So, uh, look, just a sober word on this point. I hope, man, I, 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 like, I pray for this regularly. I hope and pray that none of us here at King's Cross Church would ever be the kind of person that rejects correction like the guy in verse 10. I'm not beyond that. I hope I'm never that person. I hope you're never that person. I hope that's not any one of us. Like, that would just break my heart. That would grieve me if any single one of us would get to this point, had this sort of heart posture that said, look, I don't need correction because I'm always right in every situation. I've got it together, right? Like, I hope none of us would ever get to that place to where we're unwilling to be corrected, unwilling to be called out on the carpet. Like, can we admit that we all have blind spots, right? Every single one of us has blind spots. You know what mine are right now? Couldn't tell you. <laughs> That's why they're called blind spots, right? I can't see it, but maybe you can. Maybe the people in my life who love me a lot are encouraged by me, but also aren't too impressed by me can see those things. And as brothers and sisters who love me care enough to say, hey, look, in the scriptures, I see this. And correct me if I'm wrong, but like in your life right now, I kind of see you doing this. And so, hey, look, like I'm not trying to offend you. I'm trying to love you in this. And I just, I just want to check on, on how you're doing. I want to check on your heart because I want what the Bible calls the fullness of Christ for you. I want that for you because I feel to believe that there's nothing better for the Christian than the fullness of Christ. I don't, I don't want you to rob yourself from that. And so, man, I'm asking you, would you consider what I'm saying? Would you pray about that? Would you maybe ask others who know you well about that too? And circle back with me. And, and man, if I'm wrong, like, I'm sorry, but like, uh, I, I hope you see that I'm having this conversation because like, I love you and I care about you. Like, man, I, I don't want us to be the kind of people in the kind of church where, where we're afraid to have those kinds of conversations. And I don't want us to be the kind of Christians that don't desire to, to, to have others be willing to have those conversations with us as uncomfortable and as messy as that might be sometimes. It was my hope and prayer that every single one of us, myself, yourself, would see, that we would see ourselves as someone who needs that too. Someone who's not beyond that need. That you're not too worried about impressing, so worried about impressing others that you're unwilling to admit that, yes, while you love Jesus, you're also broken and in progress just like everyone else, just like me. Uh, the other night, um, um, the other night, a, a group of us were hanging out at uh, Nick Stewart's house, uh, just group of guys smoking cigars, talking about 
life and theology and work in the church, uh, talking about King's Cross. And, uh, and one person at one point mentioned uh, how his, his home group has gotten into this sort of sweet place and rhythm where it's really not uncommon for someone to just openly share about uh, a struggle that they might be having with sin. Like it's not uncommon for that to just show up in a time in a home group where somebody shares that and they're showed grace and they pray for them and encourage one another and check up on each other throughout the week. And hey, look, maybe you hear that and that idea terrifies you. But my hope is that if it does terrify you, that you would eventually grow to have an appetite for those kinds of relationships. Those kinds of relationships that are so invested in and care so much about your eternal security and spiritual health that they're willing to risk the comfort of your relationship for a fleeting moment to get you there. You see, I don't want you to live your life as a disciple of Jesus, I don't want you to live your life as a disciple of Jesus who feels that they have to protect themselves from other disciples of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus should not have this posture where we feel like we need to put on a front, impress others and protect ourselves from hard conversations with other disciples of Jesus. We need each other. We need that. Paul says, even the divisive person who's destroying everything good, even that person needs someone who loves and cares about them enough to call them out again and again to try and win them back. And if this divisive person continues to dig their heels in the ground, then he says, look, they're just participating in their own condemnation. In other words, that's on them. That's why he says in verse 11, know that such a person is warped and sinful, which is a way of saying that they're completely just off the rails, blinded by their ego. He says that person is self-condemned. You see, if you refuse correction, if you refuse correction from followers of Jesus who truly love you, desire God's best for, for you, and you're causing division, tearing apart Christ's church and leading people astray, if you re re refuse to turn from that, that, from, from, from that road, then you are bringing condemnation on yourself. You can't blame it on the church that drove you out. Ultimately, it's yourself. It's on you. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 11. I want to be clear about something. Like This isn't Paul saying... Like, this is an eye-to-eye type of situation, right? Like, hey, since they're being divisive, just divide from them, right? Like, it's not eye-for-an-eye situation because the motives here are entirely different. The, the, mot the motives of what he calls a divisive person and the motives of what he considers, you know, the church that should come and go after this person, even if it gets to the point of, of, of having to um, cast them off, like, your motives are different in that. Here's how Brian Chappell, uh, a pastor theologian on the East Coast, here's how uh, he articulates this. He says, those who are divisive by nature, they lust for the fray, incite its onset, and delight in being able to conquer another person. 
On the other hand, a person who loves the peace and purity of the church may be forced into division, but it is not his or her character. He enters arguments regrettably and infrequently, and when forced to argue, he remains fair, truthful, and loving in his responses. He grieves to have to disagree with a brother. Maybe you're the kind of person to where like you feel like you've got the gift of discernment and you feel like you're always having to correct your brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, if you are not grieved when you have to disagree with somebody, if you're not grieved when you have to call someone out, then hey, maybe you have to check your heart. Maybe there's a there's there's maybe there's an ounce of that divisive person in you. Maybe that's something that you need to address. You see, the idea here is that this process of what, we're, again, we're calling restorative discipline would serve as sort of like this proverbial shepherd's staff that leads a wayward sheep back into the safety of the fold. It's gentle. It's looking out for that person's good. It might catch them off guard. Uh, you might get some resistance. It might be uncomfortable on the outset, but eventually you're going to get them back where they want to be and they'll ultimately be thankful. That's more what it's like. You see, and this is why the people of the gospel, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, this is why the people of the gospel, we need the community of the gospel. You can't do this thing on your own. You're not, you're not supposed to. You're not called to. God did not just reconcile you to himself. He adopted you into his family. And so we need others to, to, to sharpen us because the sins that are most likely to destroy us are the ones that we can't see or acknowledge ourselves. And so we need each other to, to help us on that road of sanctification, bring us back to the gospel because only the gospel can heal us. Only the gospel can reveal the mess inside of us. Only the gospel can heal us. That's why we need the gospel to be the center of how we do church together. Right? Some of us grew up in church atmospheres or traditions where we were taught that the gospel is how you get into this whole church thing. And from there on, you just do Christian-y stuff. Right? But at King's Cross, we believe that we need to be constantly centered on the gospel, tethered to the gospel, because the way that we grow, the way that we minister, the thing that fuels us as we seek to reach others is that very gospel. We need to repeat it and rehearse it again and again and again. It needs to be the center of how we do church. You see, because it's the gospel that enables us to have healthy harmony and unity because it destroys any sense of superiority and it also destroys any sense of insecurity that we have. Centered on the gospel is the best place to be. It destroys your pride and it destroys your fears and your shame. The gospel destroys any sense of superiority because in the gospel you realize you didn't save yourself. 
You didn't earn salvation. This isn't your thing. This is God's thing. It's a free gift to you. It's called amazing grace. And the gospel destroys any sense of insecurity you have because in the gospel, you see that you are accepted by God, adopted into his family, given citizenship in his kingdom, and a mission to represent him to the world. You see, the gospel is what keeps us together as a community. It's what draws us together. And man, we need to protect ourselves from any threat to that gospel, from any threat to that unity that we have in that gospel. But we need to do it with love, with patience, with grace, to restore one another and to strengthen this great grace thing that we have together. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.